brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. It has been several years since Dan Gordon has been on the show, and, uh, like, everybody always loves when we have him on. I still get emails referencing his books and stuff and people who enjoyed them, but I always try to find an angle to bring someone on, and with what's going on in Israel, I was like, all right, this is the perfect time to bring him back because he was just there, so looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know what you want to talk about. You want to talk about the royal wedding. Very. <laughs> Dude, my life. You know, I, I hate the. I, I think it's despicable the entire notion of being a hereditary lord, a king. I mean, I, I find the entire thing repugnant, and I, I think it's disgusting that Americans are fawning over the royal family. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny? I was actually, I guess. It, it makes sense that she would be more into it than us because she's a female and they tend to gravitate towards this type of thing. But it's, I a, didn't, it's like a Disney princess wedding. Oh, yeah, she's but, getting married. She's a princess. I didn't think, knowing Danielle Vizier, this would be like a huge thing to her. And she's one of those people who woke up, I think, at like 2 a.m. Oh to watch Lord. this. Why? Wrote an article about it. And I think no, there was I know, like a good response on the article. Um, I guess the two things of note about the wedding... Because I am with you, I don't really care. But I actually did notice Big Phil tweeting about how which one is it anyway? Prince Harry, right? Harry. I gener- I genuinely don't yeah. remember. But he did serve in the military. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a pretty honorable thing to do when you're a guy who could blatantly not have to serve in the military. Well, I mean, the royal family knows it has to evolve, and you can see over the decades and in, in contemporary history. The royal family is very much invested in making sure that the public continues to love them <clears throat> because that's the only way they can hold on to their position as royals. I mean, it's such an obsolete concept in today's world. And Britain has a democratically elected government. Why, why do we even have royals? But uh, they, they spend a lot of money on PR firms and public relations and all that stuff to make sure that the public continues to love them. And they make sure they do the things they need to do to make sure that the public loves them, like marrying a quote-unquote commoner. Look, we have so much in common with you. I'm marrying this commoner who's a millionaire and from an elite class. But she's common. She's common. Well, the fact that, that she is of mixed race, though, right, is pretty... Mixed race, yeah! The rest of us have been marrying mixed racial people for fucking ever. Yeah, and all but, of a sudden, a single royal oh, marries a mixed racial it, woman. It's similar to us having a mixed race president, though, right? I mean, it... it took a very long time and it finally happened. I like, I get some of that appeal. People probably thought the Royal family was going to be 100% white forever. Mixed racial. <laughs> yay! I'm just, I don't look, I, I have no dog in this fight of any uh, kind. Get I'm just telling you that this is what people care about. Here. Apparently. 
Um, and like I said, Big, Big Phil did tweet out who, you know, is a part of the uh, Har- team. You know, Harry did serve in the military, and I mean, I don't want to take that away from him. I mean, uh, good and, for, and, good and for him. Fair, I think that goes beyond any PR thing. Look, he... I, to to choose to go into the military is a pretty big commitment. It's not like I'm, I'm going to put out a press release of I I'm helping think, poor I people. I think that or, when you're a member of the British royal family, that your life and your path is pretty much laid out for you. And the amount of individual choice you have in it is probably somewhat limited. You know, there's left and right limits. But, I mean, I, I, I it's probably one of those things like, listen, boy, now you got to go and serve in the military, put that uniform on, you know. And, but I think Harry probably, I think that serving in the military did mean something to Harry. You yeah. know, I don't think, you know, it was just like for him – or maybe it started off as something that, that was an expectation, became something much more. I don't know. But, I mean, I think he does genuinely care about the military. Um, and, you know, I won't take that away from him. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's as far as we'll go on the, this topic. Because I don't think anyone in our <laughs> podcast cares, except for Daniel Bézier. She was very into this. Uh, I actually showed you a clip of Tim Kennedy, who's been on the show several times, on Joe Rogan's show. Um, at least claiming that special forces and army recruitment in general uh, has gone way down and goes into the reasons. If you look that up on YouTube or listen to the whole podcast, you could find it. But he he blames things like obesity. Um, and he even at one point talks about that the Navy SEALs have just done a better job at recruitment than the army. Yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to bring it up just because, I, I mean, I know that Tim's heart is in the right place and he's just trying to encourage people to, you know, get into shape or encourage people to join the military, take an interest in that, um, go to special forces, which is cool. Um, but I disagree with a few things he said and some things that maybe give people the wrong impression. Um, you know, he, he said that you can't join. He, what he was commenting on is that the pool of people that special forces can select from is getting smaller and smaller, largely because of things like childhood obesity and stuff like that. Um, but he was also saying that, you know, the pool is small because uh, you have to be combat arms to go to special forces. That's, that's actually not accurate. Um, he said, you know, if you have bad eyes, you can't go to special forces. All, that's also not true. I've had corrected 2020 vision since I was like, 13 my, you, my eyes are, are shit don't you have to lie about it though no you do not have to lie about it okay because i remember nick irving's been on the show and nick irving that's color blindness that's a di- yeah. that's a different thing because but he couldn't become a seal because of that i believe i, I don't think you can become you can join the military I, in, at all because it becomes a thing like okay the red button fires the missiles all right bro push <laughs> the red button you don't know which button's red because you're fucking colorblind yeah. i mean that's why it's an issue um, but you, if you have corrected 2020 vision, you can join the military. I mean, I was, I was in special operations. I was a sniper. Um, so it's like disabuse ourselves of that myth that if you have poor eyesight, you can't join the military. You can't go and do all this like cool guy, special ops stuff. You definitely can. Um, but beyond that, I, I think there are recruiting issues, of course. And there's also two types of recruiting for special forces. There's people you're trying to recruit um, off the street, so to speak, the 18 X-ray program, guys who come right into special forces. Um, and then there's recruiting within the Army, um, which is what the Special Operations Recruiting Battalion does. Um, they try to find you know, the people who are already in the military and say, hey, come to special forces selection. To, you know, try, this, try this new career field out. See if you like it. Yeah. Um, and there are two, those are two different types of recruiting, two different kinds of things. Um, the obesity issue, I mean, no doubt that plays a role. Um, 
And and he talks about like as technology has evolved, more kids are just playing video games, staying on the internet all day, not out doing things. I think that's true to some extent. Well, yeah, that's what well, that's what I was telling you earlier. I mean, but I mean, thank God that we don't have to work till in the fields from dawn to dusk every day. Um, but okay, this is one of those repercussions of that. Um, it, it just goes so much farther beyond that. If you look at the special forces qualification course, the numbers of soldiers that they're producing and sending into the force every year, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me. I think it was like at one point it was like 1800 students were graduating and becoming green berets. I mean, like a couple hundred students every month or every other month are graduating from the Q course and becoming green berets. I mean, it is a ton of people and the most fit kids are the ones that are going to gravitate towards the military and especially towards special forces. You know, yeah. that kid that played lacrosse all through high school, uh, kid that's kids that played basketball, uh, football, all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't, I've never been into sports. I'm not a sports guy, but I was interested in the military. And so I was running five miles four times a week because it was just the kind of guy I was. I, uh, I want to join the military. And, you know, the, the, the kids, who want to be SF are going to be in physical shape. They're going to be in decent physical shape. And then the army will help them get closer to where they need to be. Um, but the, the issue I, I, I was bringing up is that the reason why special forces is undermanned right now, it isn't so much because of recruitment. I, I think that's kind of a red herring. And I think that's kind of an easy thing to point your finger at. Um, the reason why special forces is undermanned and also inexperienced in a lot of ways, I hear from team sergeants who are in the force today. They're like, man, my team is all like fucking 22 year old kids who have never been deployed. Or maybe you have a 24 year old who was on one deployment to like, uh, the UAE on like, on like a training deployment, nothing against these young guys. I mean, they're, they're great guys. Uh, I was a young guy, didn't know shit. <laughs> you know, I, I've been there. I did all those stupid things, all that made all the dumb mistakes, um, but the teams are very young, um, which is interesting to think about because after 16 years of war, you think we'd have like super experienced guys, right? We'd have these guys who served in the infantry and in 82nd Ranger Battalion, um, all this sort of stuff, then went on to special forces, and now they have like 10 deployments there were, with there, special I forces. I mean, we do know guys like that. Yes, but those not, people you know, exist. Yeah. The thing is, they're all getting out. They, yeah. they all got I'm thinking out. thinking of like Terry Shepard got out, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're the, the real issue is not so much the recruitment, it's retention yeah. and why people aren't staying in the force. Um, and they're not staying because of the the they're just their lives are being made miserable the micromanagement the bureaucracy um just the quality of life so guys are popping smoke and i i mean i was blown away there and when i left fifth group it was just a deluge of guys we all left i mean my team came back from iraq and then half of the team got out of the army right away and that happens quite often sometimes like the entire team just leaves the army um I mean, stuff like that just happens all the time. It's incredible. And the retention numbers, and some of them have been reco- reported up to Congress, and I'm told that they're not exactly accurate, that they're fudging the numbers a little bit. Which I feel like everyone does, right, yeah. in every industry. Yeah. Um, but the retention numbers in special forces are dismal, dismal. And, and, and I think the force really needs to look at the mirror and be like, rather than blaming fat kids out on the street, they need to look at themselves and be like, what are we doing wrong? Like we train these kids, we invest all this time in them. We get them in the physical shape. We 
cram all this knowledge in the uh, into their brains. We show them how to be special operations medics. We teach them to fire mortars and machine guns and breach doors and raid targets. And we teach them foreign languages and they learn how to speak Korean and Mandarin and Arabic. And then they get to the force and they serve their mandatory two years. And they're like, fuck this. I'm out of here. Well, well, like you, for example, what's the main reason you left? The main reason, I mean, I could write a book about it. Um, and well, I, you are writing a book. <laughs> no, not, not, not about that. There's a paragraph in there. But gotcha. the, the, what it comes down to, and if I were to really put my finger on it, what I'd just tell you is that I got to a point where I realized that I could come into work and give 100%. I could give 110%. That's bullshit. No, if you give 100%, you're dead. But let's say I could go into work and I could bust my ass. Or I could not come into work at all, and it would have the exact same result. Because I'm just a cog in a wheel. I'm just a warm body filling up a roster so some officer can say he commands troops and get promoted. All of the decisions had already been made. Um, I remember I was an 18 Bravo. I was a weapon sergeant. And there's like some simple fix. I wanted to fix one of the M4s on my team. Uh, an M4 rifle was broken. And I just wanted, it was, and I can't remember exactly what it was. I think maybe it was like uh, replacing the gas rings on the gun or something. It was something really easy that any nug can do, especially me. Um, and the, the armorer <laughs> said I couldn't do that. They're like, you can't repair your own gun. I was like, why not? And he says, well, the problem is if you repair the gun and then you're shooting it and it blows up in your face, the army needs somebody to blame. And they can't blame you because you're dead. Mm. I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, so it's like, it, it is just a situation where you have a job, you're told to do a job, and then when you actually get overseas or you, you go into training or whatever, it's like your hands are tied, you're not allowed to do your job. And I mean, no one wants to work in that environment. I mean, that's just beyond frustrating. There aren't any opportunities for you to take the initiative. There aren't any opportunities for you to improve things and try to make things better. Um, so, I mean, who would want to stay there? So, I mean, the guys, my peers that I worked with in, uh, in special forces, um, we, um, we pretty much all of us left. I mean, one guy went out, he, uh, he, he left the army and he joined the air force to become a pilot. Um, some guys go off to Delta force selection. Some guys become officers, go somewhere else in the army. Um, a lot and a lot of guys just leave the military entirely, um, going to med school, going to college. I, I was shocked just uh, when I when I went to college and I'd be sitting in the student lounge writing papers and people would come walking through the student lounge that I knew. Guy who worked upstairs on the Halo team upstairs from me in fifth group comes walking through the door one day. I'm like, what the fuck? What are you doing here? I was on 122nd Street getting my hair cut and I turn around, the guy getting his hair cut in the chair next to me is a dude who is in Robin Sage with me. <laughs> and it went through, we went through the uh, Robin Sage is the final exercise yeah. in the Q course. Uh, and he was the, I was the senior Bravo on the team and he was the Intel guy on the team, the Intel Sergeant. And, uh, and I was like, dude, what are you doing here? And he got out, he went to college and he works for one of the largest hedge funds in the world right now. Um, and, so to, de to defend Tim Kennedy on some level... I'm not attacking Tim yeah. Kennedy. I'm just saying I disagree with oh, sure, what, but, what the real problem is. But the, but in his defense, I think part of the issue may be, and he talks about you know this on 
the podcast where he says to you know Joe Rogan where he talks about being quiet professionals and Joe's like, well, how do you play into that? Yeah, and he yeah, goes, that. the reason he's like, well, I could say on a podcast like this, go to your local recruiter and join. So if he's out there as kind of a guy doing publicity for the army, everything you're saying contradicts why you should go join you know in, in a, in he doesn't a, want to he, in <laughs> you're sense. not going to say join the army and you're just going to be a cog in the machine who doesn't get to make yeah. decisions and well i i mean frankly i can also say things that tim can't because he's still in the army exactly he's still in the national guard and you're it's not your job to recruit people no well no it's not um i i think that a lot of people and, and i've heard from them they they contact me so i know that a lot of people, I mean, I don't want to like say I'm responsible for them joining the army, but they follow uh, things like this podcast or the articles I write, sure. and, they, and they go and join the military. Um, and my words have influenced them on. But some you level. still don't have to watch what you say, thinking, right, right. Does this help the army? Does it not help? No, the army? no, I, I no. don't. Um, my thing is just to tell it like it is, and um, I, I do not like discourage people from joining the military. Course, I think yeah. there's a lot of great things about the military. Um, and we need good people to join. Um, I just my my personal deal is these uh, young guys who are thinking or or women for that matter who are thinking about joining the military. Um, I just want them to go in with their both eyes open, uh, and I want them to understand that it's not like in the movies. Um, you know, you're not going to be like, you're not going to be buddy, buddy and have like your call sign is going to be bone saw <laughs> and you're going to take on the Taliban by yourself and parachute in with a 240. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, it's not, it's not like that. Every guy who's been on this podcast says that the majority of the military and combat is sitting around waiting. Yeah. And I just want them to be aware of like the, 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 the gritty reality of combat. And I want them to be aware of the negative things of the institution of the military, the negative aspects that we've talked about on this on this uh, podcast many times. And if you're aware of it, you have a better uh, uh, chance. You have a better opportunity of avoiding those things, avoiding those pitfalls, be it, you know, we've talked about really dirty stuff, uh, you know, military sexual assault, war yeah. crimes, things like that. But if I feel like if you're aware of this stuff, that you accept and acknowledge the reality of it, before you find yourself in that situation that you're better able to avoid it or stop it um, rather than get involved in that kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, so I hope that, you know, we talk about the good and the bad and I hope it serves as, um, as an educational platform for people. Um, but Tim is right about the quiet professional thing. And we've told ourselves that we're quiet professionals and that's been like the unofficial saying or motto of special forces. Um, and I, uh, I have met, uh, with the, uh, special operations recruiting battalion in the past on Fort Bragg and they know that, it, that it's hurt them. And like, we need to, or another special forces, uh, retired Colonel, uh, I've spoken to, he said, look, we need to start putting the emphasis on professional rather than quiet. And also that mantra was created long before the time of social media and all this stuff. It's it, yeah. And the, if we're just quiet professionals, it means that somebody else is going to fill that narrative gap. That and somebody is that else, the Navy SEALs? Well, yeah, it could be that, or, or it could be even, uh, I mean, okay, it could be the sister services. But, I mean, worst case, the people who fill that gap, that narrative gap about special forces are the enemy. And it's their narrative that's going to be told rather than ours. So, or what about contractors too, right? 
I mean, there's no there's no private, quiet professional mantra to no, join no, places there, like Blackwater. There isn't, but they they sometimes have to sign non disclosure agreements. But so do so do special forces guys. I've signed NDAs about some of the things I did in the military. Um, so the yeah the quiet professional thing has kind of hurt us. Um, but we're seeing that change, and in a lot of ways, I think it's changing for the better. That guys are feeling more comfortable talking about their experiences, saying. Not not to brag, but just say I was Green Beret and I served in Afghanistan. I did this, and, and that's cool. Um, but I, I, as somebody who is kind of like at right in the middle of like veteran culture on in the media and all that, and I see all that stuff. There's also a really negative side to it, in that all these guys um, start attacking each other and tearing each other down and fighting all the time. And if you look at like vets overall on social media i mean we can easily come off as a bunch of hotheads and morons (laughs) and that's something to think about i mean honestly how you portray yourself or how you and that people see us and they think that that's who you are and that's who all of us are um it's uh some of the stuff some of the self-aggrandizing from veterans i mean it just seems like the polar opposite of like all the world war ii veterans you know they'd come marching down the street on on veterans day wearing their sports jackets with the little pins on it wearing their caps and stuff and i could never see one of those guys like getting into people's faces i'm a veteran did you thank me for my service today (laughs) like come on man yeah um so I, I think all those thing, all these things interplay with one another. And you know, as far as the quiet professionalism stuff, I mean, it's uh, it's a double edged sword. It has it leads to problems, um, but it also the opposite can also lead to some pretty serious issues. So it's a double edged sword of social media. That's yeah. what it is. Well, I believe we have Dan Gordon standing by. I'm looking forward to talking to him again. It's been very long, so let's get into it. Back on the podcast is Dan Gordon, IDF captain, also Hollywood screenwriter of films like Wyatt Earp, The Hurricane. I, of course, have to mention Surf Ninjas, which I will always remember seeing in theaters as a kid. Classic One movie. Great Hollywood classic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, IDF sniper. You, you've talked about your background uh, on shows with us if people want to dig back. I mean, it's been a couple of years. People always love when you're on. And the interesting thing about your background is how you served several decades in the IDF, then did your thing as a screenwriter and managed to get yourself back in, even though you didn't fit the age requirements and people could listen back in it. mildly, yes. So you were just in Gaza, which I want to hear all about, but what exactly are you doing at this point? Because it's safe to say, I mean, you're in your 60s now and you're still out there with the IDF. It's actually safe to say that I celebrated my 71st birthday oh, wow. with the Kiva Brigade of... Uh, the IDF. So well, that was a great way, to, great way to spend a birthday. Um, I, uh, without divulging any military secrets, uh, I spent, once I weaseled my way back into the Army, I spent 12 years in the military spokesperson unit. And then um, after I almost got court martialed there, uh, 
I decided it was time to move on to greener pastures, and I went into a unit called uh, the Brigade for Strategic Studies and International Relations, and they were in charge of planning the next war and how to defend against the next terrorist attack and maintaining the relations between the IDF and every foreign military in the world. So anything to do with the war on terror, we were the interface between the Israeli Defense Force and every other military. And that was interesting but boring. (laughs) Um, And so then I decided um, that my former brigade commander uh, in Givati uh, said uh, I want to – he got promoted and he said I want to take you with me to Central Command. And I don't know what you'll do there but I want you with me because you come up with goofy ideas. So I said "Um, what you want to do – and I, I, he had a particular project for me. I said, if I try to do it within the framework of the military, I don't have enough years left on the planet because of the bureaucracy. So it will never work. Let me try and do it in private industry. And then I'll come back to you with the thing fully developed and you'll be able to deploy it. And that's what I did. And we're now in the stages of we've developed a certain uh, military device. And it's now been combat tested uh, by the IDF, and uh, we've just put in a new CEO who's the former chief of the Israel National Police, and so we expect the thing to start moving now. So that's kind of cool on that front. Or we'll go bankrupt, one or the other. I'm not quite (laughs) sure which. Um, So then I decided I want to go back to Givati because I really love that brigade. It's an elite combat infantry brigade, and it's... It just has a very special feel to it, has a feel of family to it, and um, and uh, a wonderful supportive attitude. I mean, their their whole thing is uh, your job is not just your job; it's you see your friend in trouble, you pull him across, and it's it's unique, I think, in in that respect that that there's so much emphasis placed on what you owe your brother uh, soldiers. It's, it's, you really, you see them faltering. Your job is as much to pull them across as it is to, you know, complete the mission. And, and I, you know, for me, that brigade is family. I just love it. Um, so I convinced the new brigade commander, who's a great, great guy and a disciple of my former brigade commander, that the age of military historians who worked with a pen and a notebook is over and that what was really lacking was a competent Hollywood trained video historian. And I said, this is how you document training exercises. This is how you document operational uh, activity because every time we go out on operations that are any kind of you know, full-scale military operations, we know we're going to be accused of war crimes. And we need to have visual video documentation of what we're doing so that when we are accused of those things, we can say, well, that's odd. We actually had that incident here on tape. So you can take a look right at it. Um, So I actually made up a title for myself, and I am the chief video documentation officer, uh, which is – just total bullshit, but you know, <laughs> allows me to be in the action, which is a lot of fun, you know. And 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 I, you know, in Hebrew, the the acronym is Qatar, 
So I'll show up places and people say, you know, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? And I'm, I'll say, I'm the Qatar of Givati. And they go, what is that? I said, you, you don't know what the Qatar is? And they say, no. I said, well, obviously that means you're not supposed to know. <laughs> so, so, and they all kind of salute and go, oh, well, they don't salute. No one does that in Israeli. <laughs> but they back off and they, and they kind of buy the bullshit and I get to do what I want. So it's fun. I love that. So how does that play into what's going on right now? Because part of the reason I wanted to have you on, and, and we will get into like some of the latest books that you wrote, because the last time we had you on, you were just getting book two of uh, Day of the Dead out there, book two America, and you've right. released another book since then. But th- one of the main reasons I wanted to speak to you again was, you know, we could read all this speculation about what's going on in Israel right now, but you were just there. And I would right. love to hear that on the ground perspective. So I was actually just there in reserves, um, uh, coincidentally, because uh, I said, you know, you can use me to do training films. Uh, you can use me uh, to do, you know, promotional uh, stuff to get kids to want to uh, join the unit, you know, be all you can be kind of stuff. Uh, you can use me to videotape training exercises. So later you're able to evaluate it from multiple points of view and play it back. I mean, I'm, I'm really useful to you. So utilize me. And I, I said, you know, I will actually, you know, supply my own equipment. You guys don't have to buy it. And, and I'll make sure there are multiple cameras and, you know, it's a good idea. So that was actually there, uh, filming some training exercises and also doing a um, uh, sort of a promo, be all you can be, you know, join Givati uh, piece. And I'd f- finished actually the my reserves and had gone back to uh, Jerusalem because I wanted to be there for the day when the embassy was going to be um, transferred from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which I knew was going to be a big party like the liberation of Paris. I mean, I don't think... Israel has rejoiced in that way since the Six Day War, and and I wanted to be a part of that. And then I also knew that that Monday, Hamas announced they were moving up what they call the Nakba Day celebrations. Uh, you know, they they view the establishment of Israel as the Nakba, the catastrophe, which tells you how willing they are to make peace with us. Um, they were that was set for Tuesday, and they said, Ah, what the hell. Let's do it on Monday instead, and we're going to bring 100,000 Palestinians to the border, and we're going to storm the border. And we knew that that was really a smokescreen that they were going to try and penetrate with numbers of terrorist attacks along the border and get into our civilian agricultural communities, which are really – I mean there's one that is not – 10 meters from the border, the border of that kibbutz is the border. I mean, it's right on there. And that, that actually had to be evacuated. Um, and then the other kibbutzim along that area are, you know, 2,000 meters from the border, 1,000 meters from the border, 3,000 meters. And I have people who are like family to me there. So they announced that they were going to do, you know, a day early and, and, It just so happened that our brigade had relieved the Golani Brigade on the border as the main infantry brigade um, two days earlier. So I called up my commander, uh, my battalion, my uh, brigade commander. Nice thing is I I 
I'm not part of any battalion. I work directly for the brigade commander. So I have immediate access. So I called him up and I said, listen, you need me there today. And he said, I was just getting ready to call you. Get your ass down here. So I unfortunately had turned in my rent a car the day before and I hitchhiked and finally got to uh, Israel's interesting. I hitchhiked down to Ashkelon and then I took a taxi. Uh, <laughs> it's the only country in the world where you can take a taxi to the war. It's really, you know, it's kind of, and the guy said, the taxi driver said, I said, you get, you need to take me to Kerem Shalom border crossing on Gaza. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, I need to, you know, you see how I'm dressed. It's not a clown suit, man. I'm in uniform and it uh, looks like I'm going to reserve. So that's where I got to be. He said, well, it's going to cost you extra. You know, that's not, <laughs> I don't go into war zones on the same meter. So I said, okay, whatever it takes. And I got down there. And um, so I was in the middle of that whole thing. Uh, and I was up on uh, on the ridge above Kerem Shalom Um and I was there that entire day, which I will tell you right now was uh, a real shooting war. Uh, they were shooting at us. It was live fire, uh, pipe bombs, grenades, IEDs. Uh, I believe three terrorist uh, unit attempts to infiltrate the border uh, at various places. Um, it it looked like the Alamo. Um, I'll say what is always said, according to, according to foreign press resorts and reports, there were roughly 2,000 Israeli troops in the entire border of Gaza, which is uh, a couple hundred kilometers. Uh, there were 40,000 Palestinians. Uh, where I was, um, according to foreign press reports, there were 150 to 200 of us, and there were 5,000 Gazans. Dan, I, I want to ask you real quick. I mean, do you think this was a, a genuine attempt to penetrate the border, or was it an attempt, a, a sort of a political provocation to get the IDF to open fire and, and you know kill some Palestinians? Uh, well, Hamas's calculus is always twofold. It's carry out the terrorist attack if you can. Mm-hmm. Um but do it behind human shields so that you can both carry out the terrorist attack and at the same time claim the mantle of victimhood. And have a so, propaganda victory. Yeah, you want to get as many of your own people killed as possible, killed and wounded as possible. You want them to be women and children, if at all possible. And they literally were pushing women and children to the front. Uh, and the Gazans themselves are now bitter about it and saying they, they lied to us, they deceived us, they told the ar- us the army had already fled and they pushed women and children up to the front. There was a famous picture of a dead baby girl. Turns out the dead baby girl who supposedly was died as a result of Israeli tear gas. Um, the first thing they did was set fire to tons of tires. Mm-hmm. And that was just, if you have ever breathed that crap in, that is carcinogenic black tar. Uh, I felt like I'd smoked about 10 packs of cigarettes. It took about eight showers to get it off of me. Um, that's, and they admit now that that's how that baby was died and that the baby was already dead and they brought her up to the fence so that the press could get photographs of the dead baby. So the Hamas calculus is use civilians as human shields, try to carry out the terrorist attacks. We know that 
that their attempts to tear, carry out the terrorist attacks were extremely real because we intercepted three terrorist cells and eliminated them. We also know they were real because we intercepted their radio transmissions to their own leaders saying, when we have taken this agricultural community, which we're going to storm and take and hold and, and take hostages, here's the guy who will give the speech there. And when you take this agricultural community and we've killed and taken hostages, here's the guy who will give the speech there. So they were dead serious about that. And it was it was a gunfight. It was a straight out shooting war. I mean, they were flying, firing live fire at us. Uh, they would rush the border fence. They we had watched them training for a week with grappling hooks. Uh, people think that we have a wall down there. We don't. We have all in all razor wire, uh, which, you know, you throw grappling hooks on it and attach it to a truck. And it's not hard to pull that stuff away. Uh, and when you've got 5,000 people rushing the fence, um, you're, you're in, you're in trouble. Uh, and I will tell you that our rules of engagement were so strict. Um, we were told that, first of all, they had said to, we dropped leaflets to the Palestinians. We sent them text messages on their cell phones because we have every one of their cell phone numbers. Just that's because what we do. And we called their cell phone numbers and we said, do not approach within a thousand meters of the border fence or you will be doing so at risk of your life. The truth was, again, according to foreign press photographers and photographs, 95% of the soldiers on that border were equipped with mini Tavor assault rifles. Mini Tavors have an effective range of 250 to 300 meters. Uh, very few people ever saw an actual sniper weapon uh, on that fence. The sniper weapon that we use is a Remington 700 with an effective meter uh, range of around 800 to 1,000 meters. Our snipers are trained to shoot at around 800 meters max. Uh, and you saw very few of those weapons there. On the ridge where I was, uh, where we had an eight-man team, uh, seven of the guys had... Uh, According to foreign press reports, not me, this foreign press saw them. Um, there were seven guys who had, uh, you know, mini Tavors, and there was one guy who had a, a longer range weapon. Our rules of engagement were if uh, you saw someone that was approaching the fence within now, you know, shooting range of the fence, you were to shoot below the knee. Um, uh, that was a strict order. If you had to take a shot, that was lethal fire because you saw someone with a weapon and he had used it. This is as if you're returning fire um, and you don't feel your life is an in imminent threat because you're not about to be overrun. But somebody just took a shot at you. You spotted the guy. You've got him in your sights. You had to call uh, a lieutenant colonel. You had to call a battalion commander uh, in order to get permission to take the shot. We actually have spreadsheets with every shot that was fired. Literally every shot that is was fired is documented. Who shot it, when it was shot, under what circumstances. Um, and then later Hamas admitted that of the 61 people who were killed, 50 of them were Hamas terrorists. And we then published their names 
because we knew who every one of them was. When they, when they gave the list of the dead, we said, oh, Ahmed, uh, we know who Ahmed is. He's this rank in Hamas. He lives at this address. Here's how much he was paid a month. So 50 of the 61 who were killed uh, were Hamas terrorists. They had them in specifically in civilian clothes, numbers of them dressed as women. Um, and uh, they were dead serious about what they were trying to do. And it was... It was a very um, it was a very smart operation from their standpoint because it was the objective was to create constant chaos. Uh, so what they did was they first set on fire tons of these tires. Now because Gaza is on the Mediterranean, the wind is coming in from the sea, so all that black carcinogenic smoke is blowing into us. And it's the best smoke screen in the world. There's not a smoke, military smoke grenade in the entire world that will give you that kind of cover. And they had those fires burning everywhere. And I'm telling you, I still am coughing at night and my eyes haven't stopped stinging. Um, so first there was the smoke screen. Then they're blaring this loud music and constant uh, death to Israel, death to America tapes over and over. So you have this, you know, sound offensive going on. Then they were flying over kites. You'd say, well, that's no big deal, except every one of the kites, and they flew a lot of masses of them over, had incendiary bombs on them. So one of those kites lands in a wheat field because it's all agricultural area, and now you've got a raging brush fire. And there were scores of these brush fires that are all of a sudden engulfing you uh, and are behind you and coming towards you. And in addition to doing economic damage and wiping out, you know, a year's crop, um, they're a terrorist weapon. Then in addition, so you got the smoke, you got the noise, you got the kites coming over. Uh, there were, there were IEDs that they had planted along the fence. There were pipe bombs that they were throwing. They were launching grenade launches, uh, uh using grenade launchers and launching grenades at us. And there was live fire. And then they would do a mass rush towards the fence. Now, while all that is going on, that's a smokescreen for the terrorist unit to try and penetrate. And, you know, their terrorist units are good at what they do. They're well-trained. They're good commandos. They're good soldiers. I, I won't take that away from them. Uh, thank God we're better. And uh, the three terrorist units that had very clear plans to attack agricultural communities were all intercepted and all of them were killed. So their plan was to penetrate the, the concertina wire and then take hostages on the kibbutz? Uh, kill and take hostages uh, on kibbutzim. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, uh, they wanted to hold territory. And they told their people, once you penetrate that wire, we're marching to Tel Aviv. We're reclaiming uh, you know, our homeland. Now, what's interesting about that is everybody in the world tells Israel, uh, if you retreat to the 1967 borders and allow for a uh, Palestinian state, there will be peace. You guys are the cause for all the problems in the region and uh, probably you're the cause for cancer too. Well, what everybody keeps forgetting is where Gaza is concerned, we used 10,000 of our own soldiers in 2005 in the most painful operation of the Israeli army to uproot 10,000 people from their farms, their businesses, 
and their places of worship. Tear them up out of there, handcuff them, and haul them off. Now, if they had been Palestinians, we'd have been called war criminals and hauled before the world uh, criminal tribunals. We used our army against Israeli Jews who had lived there for a half a century, people whose grandparents had been born there. And we pulled out every last settlement, every last settler, every last military outpost, and turned over every centimeter not inch, but every centimeter of Gaza back to the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is, is the co-signer of the Oslo Accords. The PA was weaker than Hamas, and Hamas very shortly staged as bloody a coup as you can ever imagine. You can still see some of the videos on YouTube. They lined up hundreds of their Palestinian brethren who were in Fatah or the PLO, machine gunned them all, blindfolded them, pushed them off three-story buildings. Uh, when they interrogated them, they started it off the interrogation by shooting their kneecaps off. Uh, and they seized power. They are not the duly elected representatives of the Palestinian people. They conquered Gaza. Gaza is occupied today, but it's occupied by Hamas. So they were not... Uh, going up against the settlements, they were going up against the 1948 internationally recognized border of Israel, trying not to uh, reclaim any occupied land. They're, they told their people, you're getting Tel Aviv. You're going to march all the way to Tel Aviv. And they bought it, and then they used that as a human shield to try and attack the agricultural communities. Dan, I, I want to ask what you see as if there is any, I mean, sometimes we start with an assumption, um, but is there a long-term strategic calculus to Hamas? So what their, their strategic plans are um, when we see these limited actions, like trying to make a runs at the border fence, what that is a strategic gambit that leads to what, I mean, I'm just kind of curious to hear, you know, big picture, what your thoughts are on what they hope to accomplish. So here's, here's the evolution of, of, of Hamas's battle doctrine, because they know that militarily they're inferior. They know that their advantage is that they can wage asymmetric warfare and get away with it. So the first incarnation was rocket attacks, and that began almost immediately as, uh, uh, after they took power. They began launching rockets. 2006, that was... Right. And those rockets in the beginning were, were very primitive. They were called Qassam rockets. They were homemade. Um, and then they started getting precision uh, rocketry uh, from Iran. And we care, then had to impose a naval quarantine to prevent those weapons from coming in, just exactly the same kind of naval quarantine that the United States imposed against Cuba for the exact same reason, because they filled, feared missiles going from Cuba to the United States. The difference was not one missile was ever fired against the United States, and we've had, I think, about 12,000 rocket attacks against Israel. So in response to the rocket attacks, we developed Iron Dome. And Iron Dome is an anti-missile system that works short range. We have a three-tiered missile system. It's, it's made up of Iron Dome, uh, then an intermediate uh, uh, rocket uh, interceptor called David Sling, and then the Aero missile for long-range uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So we have a three-layer defense program that's almost totally 
implemented now. Iron Dome's been there since I think 2010 or 11. Uh, and uh, uh, David Sling is now operational. Arrow will be operational shortly. So Iron Dome became the answer to the rocket problem. It intercepts 90 to 95% of the rockets. So suddenly they were without a weapon. In 2009, uh, 2009, 2010, they waged a war against us. And I was attached to the airborne at that time uh, as part of the military spokesperson unit. And there was a big battle at a place called Alatatra. And at Alatatra, they really tried for the first time the terrorist tunnel tactic, mm -hmm. where they said, okay, we're going to have tunnels where you can't see us. We're going to pop up. Um, we found, again, by the grace of God, we intercepted a Hamas terrorist who had on him a map. They had taken years to prepare the battlefield at Alatatra. Almost every one of the houses was booby-trapped. They actually had dummies set up in the windows to make it look like it was a Hamas terrorist. Then they would fire. They would have a guy who would fire from that window. Our rules of engagement at the time said you can't fire an anti-tank uh, or a tank shell into the house to take it out. I mean, I've talked to Marines from Fallujah, who's, and I said, what would happen if you get fire from, you know, X house? He'd say, you know, you tell the tank to lob a shell in there and it's over. I say, yeah, well, we, we had to take it with infantry. Uh, so the idea was they would lure an infantry platoon into taking that house. As they would cross the threshold, they would detonate an IED, and that would do two things. It would split the platoon in half. It would kill or wound everybody who had you know, been in range. And then they had a kidnapping team that was inside the house, in a tunnel, uh, underneath a carpet or tile. They would pop up, you know, the carpet would be thrown off or the tile thrown off. The plan was to take the wounded and the bodies, drag them into the tunnels. The tunnels led out of the village and they'd whisk them deep into Gaza and they would have now Israeli soldiers as hostages and that would be the big victory. It totally failed because we got the map that showed every single booby trap there was, every tunnel there was, and they didn't succeed in getting one Israeli soldier. But one very smart guy in Hamas said, okay, it didn't work this time, but the idea of the tunnel is really cool. This is when so they took the IDF soldiers hostage tunneling across the border, right? So they then began tunneling underneath the border of Israel. And the first person to fall victim to that was Gilad Chalit, who was mm -hmm. the hostage who was taken. But they said, you know what? If we were tunneling, that time we tunneled towards a military base. We took a military hostage. But if we tunnel where we can be in reach of the kibbutzim and we can come up a, within hundreds of meters of a kibbutz and make a mad dash for a kibbutz and take civilian hostages and that was the war plan in 2014 was to we discovered 13 tunnels that led directly under the border of israel inside of israel came up next to civilian communities and the idea was to finish the war with hundreds of Israeli civilian hostages in their hands. And that would have brought us to our knees. That was an existential war. Um, 
And we were taken by surprise by the amount of tunnels they had. Thank goodness we have a spotter unit, which is public knowledge, that is an all-female unit. Um, and the reason it's all female is that 19-year-old girls have better powers of concentration than 19-year-old boys because 19-year-old boys think about 19-year-old girls. I, I remember you saying this on the last show with us. <laughs> and 19-year-old th- girls think about the job. And Makes sense. I, I have met the two young girls who – the first one who um, saw the first terrorist tunnel attack happening, couldn't believe her eyes – was not frozen, acted immediately, hit the alarm. We had an aerial asset uh, in the area, and uh, we took the guys, half of the unit out with a Hellfire missile. The other half of the terrorist unit retreated back into Gaza, so we foiled that attack. Then there was another attack um, in which a really smart young woman soldier um, spotted guys who had evidently already come up out of the tunnel. They were dressed in Israeli uniforms, they looked exactly like Israeli soldiers, <laughs> down to the, the right weapons, the right weapons vests, the same knee pads we use. We have a thing called a mitznefet on our helmets, which is to give the helmet an irregular shape so that uh, snipers can't see you. They had those on. The only difference was she, she was looking at the screen and she went, there's something wrong here. I can't find Waldo. But I know there's something wrong with this picture. And she said to her commander, take a look at this screen. Something's wrong here. And the commander said, there's nothing wrong there. And she said, I see a group of a dozen Israeli soldiers, but they're not facing Gaza. They're facing Israel. Why would they be facing Israel if they're Israeli soldiers? Why wouldn't they be facing Gaza? And she says, well, maybe they're just resting. Maybe they're, you know, I'm not going to send out and give the order to attack Israeli soldiers based on the fact that you see them lying in one direction. So they did a really simple thing. They went out on the net, you know, on the, on the right radio frequency. And they literally said, every Israeli soldier in this sec- sector, raise your hand. And these guys didn't raise their hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> We went, oops, and we sent out a unit, and uh, in that unit, uh, a very brave commander, a battalion commander of the Givati Brigade, who said, who heard it first, Israeli commanders lead from the front, and he just got in his Humvee, had his radio operator, and he just raced out there, and uh, he was hit by uh, an RPG. Uh, He got out and continued to fire. Uh, his name was Dolev Kedar. He was a young lieutenant colonel, left behind a wife and a couple of kids, and he was killed in that action. But his action bought enough time for the rest of the unit to come and take these guys out before they could hit the civilian community. Um, so that was the next evolution of Hamas's doctrine, which was to use the terrorist attack tunnel. And they had spent five years building those tunnels. And they had done it with your money because that was the aid that we gave Gaza to supposedly rebuild from the 2009 war. <clears throat> so they had from 2009 to 2014 to prepare those tunnels. Um, then an interesting thing happened within the last year. It turns out that somehow, don't know how, 
But every tunnel they've tried to dig into Israel has collapsed on the people who were digging it and killed them all. It's the damnedest thing. <laughs> it's the damnedest thing, I guess, is this weird earthquake seismic thing that happens. But they, uh, that option then was taken away from them. And that was the jewel in the crown. The minute the tunnel warfare option was taken away, then they came up with uh, uh, a new tactic. And they have a new military leader. You know, Hamas has two branches, military and political, which is BS. But yeah, yeah. they're one guy who's operationally in charge of the military. This guy spent 22 years in an Israeli prison as a terrorist. He was released for Gilad Shalit. He was part of the 1,000 oh, guys shit. released for Gilad Shalit. Interesting. And he's now, the, he's now the military commander of Gaza. And his name is Yeye Sinwar. And he's a very badass guy. He came up with a really brilliant idea. He said, why don't we say we're, we're Gandhi and Martin Luther King and we're going to have a peaceful march to the fence and that's all. We're just peacefully demonstrating. We're going to march up to the border fence and say, we shall overcome. And you guys stole our land 40 years ago. And we're going to sing songs and eat shawarma. And and it'll be a cultural celebration of cultural Palestinian uh, life uh, along the border fence as a fence as a means of protest, peaceful protest. And the Israelis then will be killing peaceful protesters because we're going to use that as a smokescreen to penetrate Israel with terrorist units. So that was how the evolution of how they got to that. That now they saw failed so miserably because in, in that, um, on that Monday, we killed 61, uh, we wounded 2,000. And not one Israeli soldier uh, suffered more than a scratch. And to those who say, oh, that's proof that you're mass murderers, uh, I would say, no, that's proof that we're really good shots, because if we wanted to murder people and we only hit 61 out of 2000, we're really bad shots. So when we used lethal force, there was a reason for it. And Hamas itself said, yeah, well, 50 of the 61 were actually terrorists trying to infiltrate Israel. So people were warned to stay away. They knew that if they approached within a thousand meters, they were targets. The truth was we didn't even have a majority, according to the foreign press, is that the majority of soldiers didn't have weapons that could reach beyond 300 meters. So they really, we, we granted as much leeway as humanly possible. And most of those 2,000 people who were wounded were shot below the knee. Um, there's a lot of people who were getting orthopedic care. Uh, so that tactic failed miserably. And they had planned the next day to double the numbers. They wanted to get 100,000 Palestinians out there. They only got 40,000. That means that 60,000 Palestinians didn't buy their line of BS, despite the fact that they paid 100 bucks for every family who would go, and $500 if you got wounded. Does that and show a larger disenfranchisement with Hamas and Palestine? Uh, in Gaza, you now see real disenchantment. There just was a few days ago a guy who, who self-emulated, who, who publicly set himself on fire, and the whole time he was burning, he was screaming curses against Hamas, not against Israel. He said, they deceived us, they've made our lives miserable, they use us for cannon fodder. Uh, so 
you know, the Palestinian people aren't stupid. They're, I agree that they're too, in a miserable situation because they've allowed themselves to be occupied by a terrorist army. And for those people who say the solution is a two-state solution, uh, the answer is there already is a de facto Palestinian terrorist failed state. It exists. It's called Gaza. How does it look to you? Do you want another one? Do you think the world needs another one of those? Because if we left the West Bank, Gaza would take over with a with a coup inside of two days. And then we'd have rockets coming down on, not just rockets, we'd be in pistol range of Ben Gurion Airport. You wouldn't have a plane that could land or take off in Israel. Tel Aviv would be under direct attack and you'd have a real catastrophe on your hands because then we'd have to go in and we would have to inflict heavy damages in order to survive. Wow. It's incredible. So uh, do you see, do you think that this, um, this, this sort of border run human shield tactic is something that Hamas is going to do again, or are they going to try to move on to the, the next tactical evolution? Um, hard to tell because on the one hand, initially they felt we, that they had won the propaganda war, which is always as important to them as military objectives because, and, and I will say here that the Western media has as much blood on its hands as the terrorists do. Um, 95 to 99% of the foreign press was on the Gaza side of the border. They were not interested in covering what the Israeli soldier was up against, what we were up against. You didn't see reporters out there. Dan, I'm a journalist and I volunteer to go and I would cover from the IDF side and report please, on what's going on. Please do because, you know, there's an old saying in journalism, what bleeds leads. And so they wanted to be there. They had already written the narrative. Israelis are going to be mass murderers and we want to be there to see the dead babies. And so they were, they are, they have as much blood on their hands because every time they write a story distorting the truth and saying that this was a peaceful demonstration where Israel, you know, murdered innocent civilians without cause, they consign another Palestinian child to death and the blood is on their hands and damn them to hell for it. Well, there are definitely two sides to the story, and I mean, I, I definitely feel that both of them should be told because it's definitely not as clean cut as you know many people would like to make it seem. Um, well, as you look, say, in the past, I'm, I'm a media guy. If I wanted a good story, I would go to the the Israel uh, Defense Force military spokesperson unit and say, "Hey, I want to be up there on that ridge with those snipers." Yeah, yeah, and I want to see how they operate. What the rules are, are they really phoning in to get permission? How many people are shooting at once? Are they shooting wantonly? And I want to actually see what it looks like when you're a handful of guys and there's 5,000 people rushing you. You know, that's if I were a journalist, I'd say that's a pretty good shot. I want to cover that one. You didn't see that, though. Yeah, I think that'd be a great soft rep story for sure. Yeah, no, it absolutely would be an important trip. I, um, I, you know, there's something to be said too, and I, I mean, I think Israel has experienced this. So has America, and when we try to fight these counterinsurgencies, and whether Vietnam, Iraq, or wherever, I, there's I, I don't know who you know came up with this idea, but they said that when a, a strong power fights a weaker power, 
they also get become weaker. That there's something about you know when you're fighting the underdog, the the uh, Viet Cong or an Iraqi insurgency, it ends up making a big, a large, uh, powerful state in the United States's case uh, weaker or perceived as being weaker at the end of the day. Well, there, and again, the press is really a willing participant in that. I mean, I have a lot of my buddies who were in Vietnam while I was in the Israeli army and they said, but for the press militarily, we would have, we would have won that war. Well, that I kind of disagree with because then it becomes the military blaming the press for military failures. Um, and it allows us to defer responsibility. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, but in, in, in answer to your first question, the biggest problem is, you then get this charge of disproportionate response. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how militaries operate. If you don't have a disproportionate response, you will lose the battle. You win the battle by overwhelming force. Yeah, it's not supposed to be proportional. It's supposed to be one-thirds, two-thirds, or even more, depending on the target. Yeah. And, and my question when I was in the military spokesperson unit was, if you had seen another couple hundred Israeli dead bodies, would you have been happier? We spend a huge amount of money on civil defense. We have, uh, if you go along the Gaza border, anywhere in that area, into the town of Sderot, every 50 meters, there's a bomb shelter and it looks like a bus stop. And one of those saved my lives. I actually have a picture of, of uh, there was a Katusha rocket coming down and I made a mad dash for that shelter. And as soon as I hit it, a shell fragment hit the window in that shelter <laughs> Oh man! and would have taken my head clean off. Um, uh, so we spend an inordinate amount of money on civil defense. That's why we didn't have those casualties. And then we developed Iron Dome. I mean, when you fire 10,000 rockets at densely populated civilian areas and you don't get any casualties, whoever's in charge of your home front command and your civil defense is doing a pretty good job. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you going this in depth into the history yeah. of everything, because I think this is a subject that people, people don't know the entire history of, and you've been there and lived it. And I should say that while you were talking about the tunnels, which are obviously very well researched on as well as having operated there, uh, that was the the catalyst for your two original books of the series, um, Day of the Dead, Book One Gaza, Book Two America. And for those who haven't listened to the past episodes, you talk about the threat at the Mexican-American border being similar to the same thing you saw with those tunnels. Yeah, I think as ISIS gets squeezed out of the Middle East... I think they're going to have no choice if they want to maintain credibility uh, other than to carry out a mass casualty attack against the United States. Otherwise, their, their, their ability to recruit was based first on how quickly they were achieving victories and, and second and most charismatically, they had declared the caliphate. Yeah. And that was, wow. There is the caliphate. It exists. It's not a dream. And that was their best recruiting tool. As that 
has come to an end and they get pushed out of the last pockets of the Middle East, you've got guys who have EU passports, which means they can enter this country without a visa. You've got tunnels that lead from Mexico into the United States that they can rent for a day and they have very good relationships with the cartels. You have so many ways in which they can infiltrate this country and there will come a point in time where the Bataclan style attack that you saw in Paris or uh, uh, the attacks that you saw in Belgium uh, will be chump change to what they will have to launch in the United States in order to maintain credibility. Otherwise, you know, we think we think of ISIS as now it's sort of the only enemy. Well, ISIS is in competition for recruits and money with Al Qaeda. And if they don't have something big on their plate that they can claim as a victory, uh, they're going to take second position and suck hind tit to Al Qaeda. And, and they don't want to do that. So as they get squeezed out of the Middle, Middle East, that's a cause for rejoicing, but that's a cause for greater vigilance because they, at that point, I don't think have a choice but to perpetrate some grand mass casualty attack in the United States or a series of coordinated small attacks. In other words, if they, if they have... Mumbai-style attack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think of, think of Bataclan in Paris, right? They hit three locations at once, well-coordinated, um, killed hundreds of people. Um, I've, again, this is no secret, but we have places that are so much more vulnerable than Paris, it's not even funny. Uh, I'm not talking about New York on time, um, uh, you know, Times Square on, on New Year's Eve, though that's a wonderful target. And New York on any day is a wonderful target. But uh, good Lord, think of Disneyland. Think of Las Vegas. Look at what one sniper was able to do in Las Vegas. And then now imagine 18 well-armed, well-trained terrorists. You, so you set off three truck bombs in Las Vegas and you shut down the strip completely and you control it. I'm also interested to see some of the other Syrian groups, uh, some of the al-Nusra affiliated groups like al-Har al-Sham. Uh, some of the others have become quite sophisticated in the course of the war. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how those groups evolve and if they end up filling in the void left by ISIS. Um, but all that remains to be seen. Yeah. And, you know, it, Syri the Syrian story is not played out by a long part. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the main story in Syria is Iran's attempt to turn Syria into Lebanon. Lebanon basically now is controlled by Iran. Uh, Hezbollah is an extension of Iranian foreign policy and a, real, and a projection of Iranian military force. They now run Lebanon. They're trying to do that in Syria. They're trying to establish a, a Shia crescent from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean. Um, they are not going to let go of Iraq, despite the recent elections. Yeah, the influence in Iraq so they're, is they're not make, going make to make Persia great again policy. Yeah, uh, and Israel is not going to allow them. That's why you've seen the recent uh, series of bombing attacks against Iranian positions. Iran and Israel are already engaged in low-intensity warfare. There is a war going on between us and them right now in Syria 
They're building bases, which they intend to use against Israel. Israel saying we're not going to allow those bases to be built and we're not going to allow you to establish a second northern front against us. So that, you know, and then you've got Turkey, which has its own <laughs> grand ambitions to yeah. reestablish the, the Ottoman Empire. Empire. Essentially, yeah. And then you've got the Kurds who are, you know, 20 million people in the Middle East who are the real stateless people who deserve a country more than anybody else. And they were screwed by the colonial powers after World War I who split them up between four countries so they couldn't have a country of and their there's own. A, there's an interesting affinity, isn't there, between the Israelis and the Kurds? There always has been. We identify very strongly with the Kurds. A lot of, first of all, the... Kurdistan always had a large Jewish population, so a lot mm -hmm. of Israelis families uh, came from there. Came from there and still speak Kurdish at home. Their grandparents uh, still have very close friends in Kur in Kurdistan. But we also identified as a non-Muslim minority seeking to have an independent uh, state in in our ancestral homeland uh, in a very hostile Middle East. So. We have always had warm relationships with the Kurds. I think it behooves the United States, especially to arm and support the Kurds, who are a tremendous land buffer against Iran. They're pro-Western, they're pro-democracy, they love America. Um, and, and I think we should be doing everything humanly possible to support them. They will, they're great fighters. Um, they're brave as lions. Um, and, uh, they can do a lot of heavy lifting for us if we support them and give them the means. Well said. Um, so I was going to mention their, your latest project, your latest book is Let There Be Light with Sam Sorbo. And what, what's Sam's relation to Kevin again? Uh, Sam is uh, actually not a male name. Uh, her real name is Susan. Ah, okay. Sure. She, her nickname is Sam. And Sam and Kevin have been married for, uh, I believe, going on 25 years, something like that. So for uh, those who don't re remember. Hercules. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say Kevin Sorbo who played Hercules. So that, how did you get hooked up with Sam or, or Susan and write this book? And what's the premise of it? I know it's completely you know, not military related, but I'm sure our audience would like to hear about it. Well, it first was a movie and it was a hit movie. We, we uh, Sean Hannity exec produced it. We made it for 2.3 million. We grossed 7.2 at the box office, so we tripled our negative cost at the box office, which is almost unheard of. We then did a very lucrative deal with Amazon Prime. We did good foreign numbers, and we are now sell. I think we passed selling 100,000 units at Walmart of the DVD within the first six weeks, and we're going to be in Walmart for anybody who hasn't seen the movie. Uh, uh, there'll be a, it's there now, but they're going to do a big Christmas special, uh, cause it is a Christmas movie. Uh, and it's really a neat movie. And in a lot of ways, um, it's one of the most personal movies I've ever written, even though I'm not a Christian. Uh, there's an awful lot of me in there. Uh, the guy who is the lead character, um, is a professional atheist, sort of like, um, Christopher Hitchens used to be, yeah. he's very erudite. I'm not an atheist and I'm not a professional atheist, but then he gets into a car accident and, um, uh, he, uh, 
he's bitter at God for his uh, eight-year-old son having died of cancer. I know what it is to lose a son. So a lot of, and I was never bitter at God, but I certainly know what the feelings are. Uh, I was in a really bad car accident in 2013 where I got hit by a Mack truck actually three times and I was in a convertible and should by all rights have been killed. Instead, I just suffered a fractured collarbone, collarbone and a torn rotator cuff. But for three months, I couldn't sleep uh, lying down. I had to sleep sitting up. And I was doped out of my mind uh, on painkillers and muscle relaxants and being uh, having a lot of SEAL buddies, uh, the motto, anything worth doing is worth doing to excess. I was washing them down with vodka. Um, <laughs> And I found that when you can't sleep, there's actually nothing on television at three o'clock in the morning but infomercials. Yeah. And so things would begin appearing at my door that I had no memory of buying. <laughs> that I evidently felt I needed it in bulk. <laughs> I, I own two dozen miracle mops. I have cases and cases of that oxy cleaner crap. Uh, I have. I at one time had uh, three dozen boxes of sham wows. Um, so and, and all that's in the movie. And so uh, that great. became a very personal movie to me. The history behind that was uh, Kevin and Sam were pals. Uh, I knew them socially through a friend of mine named Doug Schwartz, uh, who's the guy who produced, uh, Baywatch. Um, so we knew each other, we liked each other. And then one day Sam called me up and said, would you consider writing a movie with me? And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, because I'm a professional and you're not. And, and I don't share my toys and I don't work well with others. And I never got those good grades in kindergarten. So it's a bad idea. She said, well, will you meet me for coffee? I said, oh, I don't drink coffee. She said, well, will you just meet me? I said, sure. So we met and she told me the story and I said, uh, okay, here's what I'll do. And here are the conditions. And it's, it's a yes or no. You write the first draft, however you want to write it. Cause I think this is an interesting story and I see room to sort of excise a number of demons of my own that I've never excised. And I wanted also to write the story of a pal of mine named Michael Francis, who was a mob guy who became a Christian minister. Who was, I mean, he was literally a captain in the Colombo family. Oh my God. At, at one time he was described by Forbes magazine as the most successful mobster since Al Capone in terms of how much money he generated. Um, and he's run a Christian ministry now for 20 some odd years since he got out of the joint and, uh, is totally sincere in his beliefs. Uh, he's not one of these guys who converted and then said, give me time off for good behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, he found Christ in, in, in solitary and he was put in solitary because he heard that his father, who was also a captain in the Colombo family had okayed the contract on his life and the, the warden said, we can't protect you in general population. So he spent three years in the hole oh, wow. and uh, a guard slipped a Bible under the hole. And he said, it's the only thing I had to read. And he said, he said, he said, you know, I'm a street guy. You know, I, I never heard God's voice and I didn't have no epiphany. 
I'm a street guy, you know. I, so I read the book, you know, and I made notes. He said, and it comes down to one thing for me. I said, what's that, Michael? He said, what happened to the body? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> He's a mob guy. He thinks about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Literally how he approached Christ. He said, all right. He said, this ain't brain surgery. Think about this. Jesus gets whacked, right? I said, never heard it put that way, but he says, all right. He gets whacked. They stick him in a tomb tighter than a, than a metal drum that you drop Johnny Roselli in. I said, yeah. He says, okay, they open up the tomb. I said, yeah. He said, what happened to the body? And I said, interesting questions. He said, the Romans got a problem because if anybody thinks that Jesus actually got resurrected, that's a mother of a miracle. There's going to be a lot of converts. So the Romans don't want that. He says, and the Romans were Italians. I know something about that. <laughs> he says, so they, they crucify upside down the disciples. They skin them alive. They burn them over grapes. He says, and not one guy ratted out what happened to the body. He said, I had the toughest crew in Bensonhurst. And any one of my guys would have ratted out what happened. He said, so none of them broke rank. And literally, this is how he told it. He said, so if none of them broke rank, not a one of them ratted out, no matter how they were tortured, there's only one answer. This guy was resurrected. And if he was resurrected, I had to cut a deal with him. So, <laughs> so I thought that's just a great character. And he yeah. became the pastor in the movie. That's and, awesome. And he, he tells his story in the movie, and it's him. He's not an actor. He's telling his story. So this is strictly a movie. This is not a, a book as well. Uh, that was the movie Let There Be Light, and then I wrote the book of it. <laughs> okay, that's what threw me off because I did see a book there. Okay, so yeah. the, the book came after. The book was, you know, you do a book tie-in with, with the movie Got to it. help push the movie, and the book is is the mo case with a lot of books. I think the book is actually a little bit better than the movie. Uh, I might be prejudiced because, you know, I wrote it and got to do things in the book that I just didn't have time to do in the movie. Sure. Uh, but it's a, it's a really great read, whether you're a Christian or not. It's it's actually a tremendously fun book, it, and it's it's a good read. Um, and now, uh, so anybody who wants to buy the movie can get it at Walmart uh, or at Amazon. Anybody who wants to get the book can get it on Amazon. Um, and it's, it's a good read. Uh, day of the dead book two is out there and yep. it's a good read. And, uh, Kevin and Sam and I are starting our next movie, uh, in July, which is going to be called East Texas oil. And it's the story of the 1929 East Texas oil strike in Kilgore, Texas, in which a couple of old con men who basically made their living swindling widows, um, accidentally, through the grace of God, struck the largest oil strike in the history of mankind. And, um, and in the movie, that's what brings them to God. Uh, not that they became rich, but that every lie that they told, no matter how hard they tried to lie, was the truth. Hmm. You know, one of them says, I might be stupid, but I'm not crazy. When I get slapped up the side of the head by 10 miracles, I pay attention. Yeah. Uh, 
So we'll, so that, we'll link to all that in the episode because I know people loved Day of the Dead, book one, Gaza. And the last time we had you on was when you were releasing book two. So it has been a while. I have one last question for you, unless Jack has anything else. And, and by the way, book two is really, really a good read. I mean, it takes all of it takes place in Mexico and San Diego and it's all Navy SEALs. And it's it's anybody who likes, you know, a good Navy SEAL book. Yes, yeah, up, up the alley of our listeners. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the last thing I was going to ask you, I remember the last time that we had you on was when 13 Hours was released in theaters. And right. your feelings were, you said, you know, it was a good film, but it really could have used a bigger star to have made a bigger impact. As yeah. I mentioned in the intro, you've, you've written some incredible films that were critically acclaimed and award-winning like The Hurricane. I mean, if people haven't seen The Hurricane with Denzel Washington... It's an incredible film. I really recommend people see it. So just from your perspective, from a guy who's written some huge name films, what what do you think is wrong with the modern day war movies coming out? Because I don't think we've had a, a hit with such a major impact in a while. And like, what's the next big thing that needs to happen to have a hit Hollywood combat movie? You need a movie star. I mean, you've, you've got to have... You know, either Bradley Cooper, like uh, American Sniper, or Mark Wahlberg, like uh, um, Lone Survivor. Uh, if you're going to do a big budget movie, which you you've got to spend money when you do a war movie. Uh, Michael Bay, I think, was a bit arrogant. He thought because he was the director, he didn't need uh, to have, you know, uh, a major star. Even Clint Eastwood, for whom I have the greatest respect and, in fact, live in terror of, because <laughs> he once tried to break out the windshield of my car when I parked in his parking space at Warner Brothers uh, a long time ago when I was doing Passenger 57. It was really – he was mayor of, mayor of Monterey at that time, and there yeah, were only 12 yeah. parking spots in that in that building. And if you didn't get one of those 12 spots, you had to take a shuttle that was a mile away, and I was late for the meeting. And I'd always ask the guard, is Clinton Tanner or is he up in Monterey? And the guard said, no, he's in Monterey. So I pulled my little NSX into Clint's spot. And I get out with my notebook and my script, and I'm late for the notes meeting I was doing. That's when I was doing Passenger 57. And uh, I start to get out of my car, and a guy pulls up behind me in a pickup truck. And he's, he gets out, and he's a big guy in jeans and a T-shirt, and he's got a crowbar in his hand. And I'm kind of getting ready to, okay, I've got a jerk behind me with a crowbar. And then I realize it's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and I said, oh, Mr. Eastwood. I said, gosh, I'm such a huge fan of yours. And I start rattling off his films, right? And he just looked at me and he went, get the fuck out of my spot. <laughs> and I went, oh, <laughs> it's Dirty Harry, you know? And I and uh, so I jammed on out of there and I was told I was very lucky because he had a habit of breaking out the windshields of anybody who <laughs> took a spot. And no one's going to jump bad with him because he's Clint Eastwood. Twenty years later, he was going to exec produce a movie of mine. And we we meet um, and uh, I say, actually, we've met once before. He said, yeah, I know. Where'd you park this time? <laughs> <laughs> So he just has a, a memory bite like an iron trap. But when he did that movie about the guys who were on the train uh, and he decided to use the real guys. Yeah, um, I haven't seen it. 
the movie? Well, nobody else did either. That's the whole problem. You got to have a movie star if you're going to do a movie. So when, if I do a little low budget film with Kevin Sorbo, Kevin's uh, an established star from television. He has a good name. He can get on talk radio. He's not a Mark Wahlberg, but the, I have learned that the trick for me is make the movie cheap enough. If I can make a movie for two and a half, three million dollars, and at the end of the day, the movie uh, makes all in all fifteen million dollars. In Hollywood, they'd say, "Oh, poof! Wow, what a flop!" That's a nice business to be in, you know. I'll split that that profit with my partners all day long and live extremely well, and I don't have a studio looking over my. Sh- shoulder and I don't have over my shoulder and I get to make a good little movie that tells a good story and have a very happy life. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, the, the direction that I've gone in because I don't do superhero movies. Yeah. I just, just not what I do. I was offered the first transformers and I turned it down oh, and wow. said, I, I don't know what to do with this. I said, I, I don't have anything to bring to the table. I'm sure it'll be a huge hit movie. It's just, I'm the wrong guy. It's not what I do. Interesting. Well, hey, we appreciate you going so long with us, well over an hour. And the wow. next time you have a project, definitely let us know. I mean, we love having you yeah. on. I know the audience will dig this. This has been well. very illuminating. Well, anytime. And, and like I say, I think it's I think I think the, the media has blood on their hands because Hamas uses them as a willing collaborator. And when they print stories that display what happened they encourage Hamas to do it again and they literally consign Palestinian children to their deaths and I don't know how they sleep at night well, Dan uh, I, I wasn't kidding I'll give you I'll, I'll drop you a line because I definitely go in, in bed with the IDF any any time and I'll hook you up with the uh, IDF military spokesperson I knew the I know the new commander of the uh, foreign uh, media service okay uh, so that's that's easy um it's just that, you know, when they have big events like this, um, they where it bleeds, it leads. They'll, yeah. They weren't even interested in being on our side of the fence. You know, you just didn't see them. Which so. is, uh, it, it's, um, it, it's irresponsible if you're able to cover both sides. Like, I, I would even go and cover, you know, I've been to Syria a couple times in Iraq covering it as a journalist. And, I mean, I would go and cover things from the ISIS side if I could. Obviously, that's not possible. I'm going to get my head sawed off. <laughs> but as a journalist, if you can cover both sides, you, you really should. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, there, you know, I, I hate to remind people of it. But there actually was a time, and I'm just talking about covering American military actions, Mm -hmm. when American war correspondents wore a uniform. You take a look at any of the American war correspondents during World War II, they were in American uniforms. Who who was that young – They were writing propaganda. Who was that young female journalist that uh, she actually jumped in with American paratroopers in Vietnam? I I can't remember her name for the life of me. But yeah, they used to do things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and those days are long past and I think it's a shame. I think that uh, you have most journalists – have written their narrative before they get to the battlefield, depending upon what their political ideology is. That's very common, unfortunately. Yeah. Pleasure talking to you guys, and my love to your audience. Uh, They're all good guys and and brother and sister warriors, and uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Dan. We'll do it again soon.
Bye. Appreciate it. Well, that was that was interesting. And you know what? To be honest, and, and I think you have the same feeling as me when I do see the conflict going on in Israel and, the, you know, the celebration over the new embassy, I, I do tend to read a lot of the headlines. I have not heard an in-depth perspective of what went on from someone who is there like this. So it, it gives a lot more context. I yeah. mean, obviously, Dan is not an objective guy on this situation, but at the same time, he went into great detail of what went, what went on, the names involved, and I think he makes a great argument for his side. I know there's going to be people listening on the other side of the fence on that, and we're always, wel- we're always welcome for yeah. anybody to come on. So Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely, well, specifically with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I mean, there's 10 sides to that story. It's like yeah. an intensely complicated topic, and, um, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around. But, I mean, to, to really, like, understand conflicts, uh, you, like, have to kind of take a, a step back from the blame game, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, I appreciate Dan's insight on things and, and how it played out there. Because as you go and you try to figure out what's going on, I mean, the Israeli side of the story should be part of, you know, what you look at. Absolutely. And I haven't heard all of that that he said. I know that there was the controversy over that baby, but I didn't hear in full detail. No, neither neither have I. No. Yeah. So um, and I actually do think it would be really cool if you guys get hooked up somehow and, and get to go over there to Israel. That would and cover be very, this. yeah, very interesting. And we have a writer in Israel. So I he's usually in Europe. But yeah. Yeah. But Israeli, yes, former IDF. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, man, Um would would love to see that happen. Yeah, you haven't done any like on the ground reporting in probably what three? Well, no, the last time is South Korea. So the Philippines. Yeah, so that's right. La- that was last year. Last so. year. All right. So sometime this year, a little bit. I got to go and do something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, wrapping things up here. There's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that of course is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our crate have been Emerson Knives. We just had Ernie Emerson on. Great dude. I'm going to have him on Brandon's Power Thought podcast soon. A Blackhawk Industrials medical pouch. And cool stuff like a custom playing card set with exclusive photo shoot we did of some hot models with guns. I I enjoyed looking at those. Uh, We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Also, as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the spec ops channel our channel that offers the most exclusive shows documentaries and interviews covering the most exciting military content today the spec ops channel premiere show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country everything from shooting schools defensive driving jungle and winter warfare climbing and much more again you can watch this content 
by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel. That's at specopschannel.com. And take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And uh, if you're a Team Room member, you could actually get access to that as well. If you're just a softrep.com Team Room member, and you'll also get to do those Q&As. I know Danielle recently did one. Hopefully, we'll have her soon back on the podcast. It's been a while. We always like hearing from her. Um, And then, actually, Memorial Day coming up, we have the Verses and Curses Tour, which is going to be going across the East Coast, but we'll be there. I know Jack will be there, Jim West as well. I'll be there. Uh, May 28th, Emmett O'Looney's Times Square. Not to be confused with the other O'Looney's. I figure out what I'm going to read. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm under the gun suddenly. I realized that this morning. I'm like, oh, shit, it's coming up real fast. I wonder what Jim West is going to read because I just brought it up to him. Like, I haven't seen you in a while. You should come out. He's like, I want to read. Jim's going to read James Joyce Love Letters. (laughs) No, you know, he's not. Just kidding. (laughs) I don't know what he's, you know. No, knowing Jim will go there with like a very, he'll be reading for like an hour. <laughs> I'm thinking of his best man speech. Oh, yeah. But I, I love seeing Jim. I haven't seen him in a few months. Um, so, yeah. If, if you're in New York City, May 28th, if you're on the East Coast, I know they're doing like Pennsylvania, D.C., I believe, Florida. You can just go to Leo Jenkins' Instagram. It's at Leo underscore Jenkins. Um, also, the uh, Spec Ops TV app is available on the iphone but if you have an android it'll be available early next month and i should mention on soft rep is the article we talked about the last podcast yep. where it's like a, kind of a long in-depth uh sort of a pseudo after action review just based on what we know publicly about the uh niger ambush and you know dod put together that whole film um, that kind of breaks it down. So I wrote about that, and then I wrote another article that should probably be out before the weekend, and it's about Memorial Day, and it's called Why It's Okay to Have a Barbecue. It's out, I, I believe. No, it's not. Really? I could have I sworn I, wrote, I saw this up. <laughs> I wrote it this morning. Why do I feel like I saw this? I, I could be just wrong here. Did you did you mention something about this? I on, probably on your. In, on your um, no. social media, I'm pretty. I'm going to look on the site right now. I mean, you would probably know better than me. You are the editor in chief of the website, but I could have sworn I saw this. No. All right. Well, then it'll be up soon. I'm, I'm like losing my mind here because I saw something about that. It's okay to have a barbecue, folks. Enjoy yourself. I'm losing my mind here because I know I saw it this morning. I really. <laughs> what if I go to your author page on here? Where is your, is it just softrip.com slash Jack Murphy or let's see. By the way, yeah, we do have to have Alex Holmes back on because the, his fitness column is blowing up. People love yeah. it. All right. Maybe not. I, I swear. I think I saw it. So it'll be up before this weekend. Yeah, I think it'll probably be up sometime during the, you know, late this week or over the weekend. Cool. All right. Uh, next episode. We have Leo Jenkins on to promote his uh, event. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And while we're there uh, at the event on Monday, I'll probably get some audio and throw that into the show. Okay. Cool. Leroy Jenkins. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softrepradio. 
And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.